Okay, the passage that we just read in Hebrews is not really where we're going to spend our time today. Actually, we're not going to spend hardly any time there at all. We're actually going to spend almost the entirety of our time in the background of the text we just read. So we were in Hebrews 14, and it's talking about an event, in part at least, that takes place in Numbers chapter 13. So that's where we're going to go. Numbers chapter 13. It's the, let's see, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's the fourth book in the Bible. So up near the front, Numbers chapter 13. If you would please go ahead and turn there with me. As you're turning, let me just share with you the reason I wanted to start in Hebrews by looking at what the author of Hebrews says is because when when the author makes this reference to Numbers chapter 13, The thing that he draws out of the story was the need for Israel's faith. Which means that when we go back and now read this story, we have a lens for understanding it. We have the perspective of a New Testament author and what he sees when he reads that story. And so we can go back with our eyes peeled for the role that faith played, or in this case actually, lack thereof. Well, maybe a combo of the two. The role that faith played in this very interesting and important section of the scripture. So let me give you the context. Israel has just been redeemed from slavery in Egypt. They've come out of Egypt. They've been at Mount Sinai. It's it's been about... um, It's been less than, from what I can tell, probably less than two years since they left Egypt. They've been at at Sinai for uh, maybe a a year or so, uh, a little bit of an extended period of time. They've picked up camp in Numbers chapter 10, and now they've traveled a little ways, and they're in a place called Kadesh Barnea. And so here we are. They are right on the southern border of the Promised Land. It's just a couple years into the journey. They're right on the border of the Promised Land. So whenever we think, Kenny, if you don't mind just pulling that down just so I uh, can have everybody's eyes here. Thank you, brother. They're right about to go into the promised land. Now, as we know, the Israelites spend 40 years in the wilderness. But this is on the front end of those 40 years. And what's going to happen here is going to determine what's going to take place for the next 40 years of this nation's life. Right on the edge of the promised land. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through the story step by step. I think I broke it down into ten steps. So here's step number one. Read with me, if you will, starting in verse one. Step number one, God begins to move. Numbers chapter 13, verses one and two. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses, send the spies out. One from each tribe. That's going to be 12 total. God's going to send these spies into the land, which he has promised to give to Israel. It's important to remember as the story opens, that whatever challenges Israel is about to face as they look ahead in this assignment that God has given to them, they will do so as those who are under the care of a God who has made promises to them. Moses, send the spies in. And so they head in. 
Chapter 13 is step two. Chapter 13, verses 3 to 24. Step two, the spies scout the promised land. So here they go. Starting in verse 3, and I'm going to read a larger section up to verse 24 this time. The spies scout the promised land. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran according to the command of the Lord. All of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. And these were their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shamua, the son of Zakur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. That's Joshua. He'll clarify that. From the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, from, uh, the son of Sadi. From the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh. Gadi, the son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gemali. From the tribe of Asher, Sethur, the son of Mikael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Vafsi. From the tribe of Gad, Guel, the son of Maki. These were the names of the men whom Joseph sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. So there's Joshua. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage. Man, they should have listened to that. That word right there, they should have held on to that. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes, which means mid to late July. So they went up, spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rahab near Labo Hamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. I think Eshkol means cluster. The valley of cluster. Okay, so a man from every tribe is chosen. And Moses says, go in. I want you to take note of the people. I want you to look at their strength. I want you to look at their numbers. I want you to look at the strength of the cities. I want uh, you to take a look at the richness of the land. And bring us back a sample. And be of good courage. So they head in from the south. And among other things, they see that the descendants of Anak are there. And we're going to learn later that these people are especially noted for their height. These are big dudes. They grab some fruit and they head back. Step three in the story. Ten spies give a divided report. Starting in verse 25 through verse 29. At the end of 40 days they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation. So 
They're, they're reporting this to everybody. Everybody is listening. And showed them the fruit of the land. And they told, and they told him, Moses, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Okay, so verse 27, the land is good. It flows with milk and honey, just like we, just like we heard that it was going to. However, the people are strong. The cities are fortified. They're large. And these folks are everywhere. They're in the Negev. That's the desert. They're in the hills. They're by the sea. They're by the Jordan. There are people everywhere. This place is swarming with giants. So clearly in the report of the ten, fear has already started to creep in. And they should have taken note of Moses' warning. Be of good courage. But it's already creeping in. As they saw the challenges ahead, rather than setting their eyes on God's promises, and rather than taking courage from God's past faithfulness, they're beginning to tremble. Step four, Caleb is courageous. Verse 30, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. So Caleb steps in at this point. They give this report. The cities are huge. There are people everywhere. These guys are giant. And Caleb steps in. And it says, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses, which which indicates that there's already a commotion that's, that's rising among the congregation of Israel because of the report of those first ten spies. He has to quiet things out. There's... Fear is already working the congregation into a frenzy. You you catch that? Caleb has to step in. And and as they're losing sight of God's faithfulness, Caleb has to quiet the people down. They're forgetting the promises and the power of God. They're, they're They're forgetting what they just experienced as God delivered them from slavery In Egypt, they start freaking out. Caleb steps in, he quiets them down, and he makes this very bold and very brief speech. Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Now notice that Caleb doesn't disagree with any of the facts that the spies have reported. The people are strong, the cities are fortified and large, and these people are everywhere but it doesn't present an obstacle to Caleb we are well able to overcome it now this is interesting Uh, it's important to note that this is not blind optimism it's what the Bible calls faith this is faith and more specifically it's faith that is built on the promises made by God to Abraham And Caleb knows that the God of Abraham always makes good 
on his promises. He has a perfect track record. He's never failed Israel. God remembered his covenant that he had made with Abraham. And so he sent Moses to go deliver the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians. The rebellion of Pharaoh was no match for this God. The armies of Egypt were no match for this God. And Caleb remembers that. Even the laws of nature bend at the will of this God. The sea is no match for him. Caleb remembers that. Wasn't all that long ago. The wilderness, which is void of food, was not a problem for this God. He sends manna every morning. The waterlessness of this desert is no problem for God. He makes water flow out of rocks. And Caleb remembers that. So it's not blind optimism. Caleb knows God's character, and he took God at his word. Even if the circumstances presented what appeared to be an incredible challenge for the Israelites. This land was promised to us by God. And there is no force in heaven, and there is no force on earth that can prevent him from providing for us what he has promised to provide for us. We are well able to overcome it. That's faith. Step five. Ten spies now respond to Caleb's speech. Starting in verse 31 to verse 33. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able To go up against the people. For they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel. A bad report of the land. That they had spied out. Saying the land. Through which we have gone to spy it out. Is a land that devours. Its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it. Are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak. Who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves. Like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Okay. The the spies are drawing now a fear-driven conclusion. Their initial report, verses 27 to 29, you can hear fear in their voices as they describe the situation. But they hadn't come to a conclusion yet. But once Caleb says, we are able... They dig in their heels and they say, Caleb, no, we are not able. It's the same word. They use the same word. Caleb says, we are well able. They say, no. In, 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 in the Hebrew, no able. <laughs> or, no, we are able. They draw a conclusion. The fear has escalated now among these ten as they consider the thought of going into the land at Caleb's suggestion. And in order to gain the support of the congregation, because they're scared of the situation, the spies are scared, in order to now get the support of the congregation, they actually feed them with fear. Listen to this, verse 32. The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. You go in there, if we go in there, 
We will be ruined. This place devours people. We're going to be killed. That's what's going to happen. You guys want to be killed? Do you like being killed? They just feed it. Just feeding fear into the congregation. And it worked. Because step six is that the congregation of Israel melts in fear. Starting in chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry. And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or would that we had died in this wilderness! Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. That is crazy. And it's what fear will do to you. They're weeping. They're grumbling. They make a death wish. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Verse 2. They want to die in the wilderness. And God will grant that wish, by the way. God will grant that wish to the congregation of Israel. They accuse God. Verse 2. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? I mean, this is right at the heart of the problem here. Rather than trusting in God's goodness, rather than trusting in God's faithfulness, rather than trusting in God's promises as the trial comes upon them, they're accusing God of evil motives and of abandonment. When things get tough for Israel... They don't believe that God intends to do them good. Now, I don't want to downplay the difficulty of this situation. I mean, I'm sure this was very frightening. But they, they do not, they think that God wants to harm them. That that's God's motive and that's what they accuse him of. And you know what? They did the same thing at the Red Sea. Listen to this passage in Exodus 14, 11 and following. They said to Moses, as they're standing at the sea with nowhere to go, looking back and seeing the Egyptians coming, they're standing there. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Same thing. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And they didn't. They never saw him again because God was faithful to that promise. And he drowned them in the sea. But Israel has forgotten this. 
And they have resorted to accusation against their Savior. Ditching us, aren't you? They're angry at God for the circumstances rather than trusting God through the circumstances. And in their madness, they want slavery again. And when I say madness, I mean they have gone mad. They've gone crazy here. They want slavery again. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And then, verse 4, they actually begin to seek slavery again. Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Step 7. Moses and Aaron bow. Is this strange? 14.5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. So what's going on here? Well, on multiple occasions in the book of Numbers, when Moses and Aaron bow, it's because judgment is about to fall. And they are heading for cover. Getting low before the Lord. For example, uh, number 16, verse 45 God says, get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. Same, same phrase. So Moses and Aaron fall on their faces as the Israelites decide out of fear that they want to choose a new leader and head back to Egypt. And in the words of one commentator, Moses and Aaron, sensing the presence of God, fall to the ground in fear at what he is about to do. But before God shows up, and he's going to in just a few moments, before God shows up, something happens. There's one last chance, one last chance for Israel to respond. Step eight in the story, Joshua and Caleb make a final plea. Chapter 14, verse 6. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. For they are bread for us. This land's not going to devour us. This land's going to be bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. If you're reading this with the eyes of the author of Hebrews, what you see right here is there's faith. There it is. Do not fear. Do not fear. He's with us. This is the first point at which we see Joshua step into the picture. Now, here's the future leader of Israel. Joshua steps in, and he's on Caleb's side. They together make a final courageous plea to the congregation of Israel. The land is exceedingly good. It flows with milk and honey. We were there. We saw it too. This part they agree with. 
this, the other ten spies. <clears throat> if the Lord delights in us, he will give us the land. Verse 8. In other words, if God doesn't delight in us, then we would have something to fear. Right? But, if he does delight in us, then we have nothing to fear. The land will be ours. He promised it. And for Joshua and Caleb, this is a no-brainer. Does God delight in us? Does God not delight in us? Dudes, we're the people of God. Look at what he has done for you. Reminds me of Romans chapter 8. This is not in the manuscript. This just comes to mind. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he's redeemed us from Egypt... If he's purchased us with the blood of his son, how much more is he going to give us this land? This is a no-brainer. And it should be a no-brainer for the rest of Israel. But just in case there's any question, they clarify in verse 9, The Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. This is a matter of covenant promise. The Lord is not on the side of his enemies. The Lord's protection is removed from the enemy. The Lord is with us. He's going to fight for us. So do not rebel. Do not wish for death. Do not accuse God. Do not head back to Egypt. Do not abandon your faith. Don't disobey. And do not fear. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them, verse 9. This is really what it comes down to, isn't it? As Israel faces this genuinely difficult situation, and we don't have to pretend like, oh, they should have they just believed, it should have just been, you know, they should have known. Uh, it, it was probably a crisis moment in their hearts. Are you going to lay your will on the altar and trust in the Lord? Or are you going to freak out over this uh, pretty threatening situation? What are you going to do? So we can say that it was going to be difficult. Will they be afraid? Will they have faith? That's what it comes down to. Fear or faith? Fear or faith? Who will it be? What will it be for you? Step nine, Israel makes a choice. Numbers 14.10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the people of Israel. So Israel chooses. I choose fear and rebellion. And as they move in to literally kill Joshua and Caleb, and perhaps even Moses and Aaron as well, right? Because the agenda here is to get a new leader. 
God shows up at the tent of meeting in a cloud of glory. And as the story continues, which we're not going to follow the rest of today, I'll just summarize it for you. Israel will face the consequences of her decision to live by fear rather than faith. The ten spies are killed. And the result is that God sentences Israel one year for every day that the spies were in the land, scouting it out. So 40 years now, Israel will spend wandering in the wilderness, and they will die in the wilderness just as they had wished. Every person over the age of 20 in Israel would die in the wilderness as the sentence for this rebellion. Except for who? Joshua and Caleb, who both entered the promised land because of their, say it, faith. Do that again. Because of their, say it, faith. Because of their faith. Five lessons that we can learn from the story of Israel's history here. Lesson number one. First of all, we can celebrate the victory of the true Israelite, Jesus Christ. Before we talk about the fact that we too will face trials and temptations and we too have to have faith, let's remember that the greatest victory is not the victory that is won by us and it's not the victory that is won by our faith. The greatest victory is won by our King when Jesus faced the challenges of the wilderness of this world and His faith did not fail. He did not fail His people as these spies did. And when the future of the kingdom of God was riding on his shoulders as he stood at the edge of the eternal promised land and was ready to now enter in and take hold of the inheritance that would be for the chosen people of God. He conquered the enemies of his eternal kingdom. This Israelite did not fail his people like these spies did. He is the true Israel. He is the true Joshua. The way that you say Joshua in Greek is Jesus. He is the true Joshua who's taken hold of the inheritance that has been promised to the people of God so that all who are under his command might share in the spoil of his victory, cross the Jordan, enter into the promised land, our eternal Canaan. Lord, land me safely on Canaan's side. And the true Joshua accomplished it. All hail King Jesus, who did not fail to take hold of the promised land on behalf of the people of God. This is the most important point of this passage, is that where Israel failed, Jesus did not. Praise God. It points us to the faith and the courage and the victory of Christ over Satan, Christ over sin, Christ over death. But of course there are also some very practical ways in which this passage relates to us. 
Let me just quote from 1 Corinthians 10.6, because now that we're finished with 1 Corinthians, uh, I still have to make a reference to it every once in a while just because I'm so used to it. That's a joke. Okay. 1 Corinthians 10.6. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. This is a reference to Israel's time in the wilderness. And those things took place as examples for us. They were written down for us so that we might learn from them at trials. Not yet, at least. Someday, yes, but not yet. And that's the way it's always been. Israel, God's own people, God's very own people, the apple of his eye, stood on the precipice of a very uncomfortable and seemingly threatening situation as they contemplated now entering into this very dangerous land of Canaan. But it wasn't because they'd done something wrong, and it wasn't because they had wandered from the path. They weren't facing trial because it was an indication that God had abandoned His own people. That's not why this was happening. It was no indication that He intended to ruin them. In fact, God's intention was to bless them, wasn't it? The trial wasn't there to ruin them, it was there to bless them. This trial was designed, designed by God, intended for His glory, and intended for Israel's good. And He's still working that way today. That's still how He works. It's no strange thing for God to bring challenging situations into the lives of His people. Into my life, into your life. We have to be careful that we don't automatically assume that a difficulty or a trial or suffering is a sign that something has gone wrong, that we must have veered off the path somewhere, or that God is displeased with us. I mean, it might be because we've sinned. I mean, certainly we'll face some difficulty if we make poor choices. But just because we're facing difficulty doesn't necessarily mean that we veered off the path. And the, the, under, the underlying thinking behind that assumption, if when you face trial, you're, the first thing you do, your, your knee-jerk reaction is, what did I do? What did I do? What did I do? If that's the way that you think about trial, the underlying assumption is this. When I obey God, He will preserve me from trials and difficulty. When I obey God, He will preserve me from this kind of stuff. So when this kind of stuff starts happening, I wonder, where, where did I, what did I do? Where did I go wrong? And that's just simply not true. Obedience, check this out, write this down, think about this. Obedience has never preserved God's people from difficulty. Never. Obedience certainly didn't preserve Jesus Christ from difficulty, now did it? Obedience didn't preserve Paul's life from trials. It didn't preserve Job's life from trials. It didn't preserve Joseph or Samuel or David or Elijah or Jeremiah. And it won't preserve our lives from trials. That is, of course, not to say that obedience always leads to difficulty. Thankfully, that's not true. 
I'm just saying that there's no need to be surprised when God brings challenging circumstances into our lives. He's never promised that following him would excuse us from difficulty. What he has promised is that he will be with us through it. I'll come back to that in just a second. Lesson number three. We are often tempted to fear in challenging situations. We're often tempted to fear in challenging situations. So God brings these challenging situations into our lives. And when we see them, the temptation is uh, to become afraid, to become anxious. How's this going to work? What's uh, what's going on? What are we going to do? What are we going to do about this? The kind of fear that we're talking about here is a state of heart that occurs when a trial arises and God is not taken into account, not factored into the equation. It's a desperate emotion that occurs when we we look at a, a seemingly threatening situation like going into Canaan or whatever situation is coming to your mind right now. We're heading into this situation. It seems threatening. I have this desperate emotion that's occurring because I'm reading the situation but I'm not factoring God and His provision and His promises into that equation. We don't consider His past faithfulness. We don't consider His promises. We don't consider His sovereign control and power over all things. And just so you know, I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching at myself right now. You guys all know I've said enough things about how hard it is for me to sleep at night because of my anxieties. It's because of this. Because I'm not considering the past faithfulness of God. The sovereignty of God and power of God over all things. The future promises of God. And we're looking at that potential threat. And it's feeding this fear in our hearts. And it's feeding our imaginations. And our eyes are locked in on the threat. And as our mind focuses on the threat, rather than God, those fears which are being fed, they start to reciprocate up into the mind. And they start painting a picture, a worst case scenario. And, the, and, and fear starts telling us the story of what's going to happen. And we start forecasting fear driven, worst case scenarios. Fear's painting the picture of what lies ahead. I mean, just listen to Numbers 14.3. The fear driven fear forecasting the Israelites are doing here. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? What's, what, they're forecasting that they will be killed. Our wives and our little, little ones will become a prey. They're, for, they're, they're, fe- they're, they're, they're fixed on the situation. It's feeding the fear. The fear is now feeding their imaginations and they're forecasting. Israelites are allowing their fears to tell the story and to write the coming chapters in the book. 
They're not looking at, they're not listening to God. And their fear literally drove them to madness so that they end up wishing for death in the wilderness, accusing God of malice, seeking enslavement, attempting to kill God's leadership. And so we need to recognize this about ourselves as well. When trial comes, we will often be tempted to be afraid, to become anxious and to allow fear rather than God tell the story of what's to come. So beware of it because it will drive you to madness. And that's why there's so many instances in the Bible of God telling his people, do not fear, do not fear. Luke 12, 4, do not fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Do not fear them. Do not fear, check this out, do not fear anything that is frightening, 1 Peter 3, 6. (laughs) That pretty much covers everything. Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear. Do not fear. Fear is dangerous, gets the story wrong, and it leads to rebellion. Lesson four. The Lord is with us and delights in us. The Lord is with us and delights in us. Joshua and Caleb knew that God was on the side of Israel. They knew that God was going to be with them and give them victory as they entered the promised land because God had promised it to them. So they knew that the Lord was on their side and that he delighted in them. They were the people of God. He is with them. He delights in them. And Christian, you need to know that God has made promises to you as well. He is with you and he delights in you. And the same God who is worthy of trust in the wilderness with Israel is worthy of our trust today. We must continue to remember that He is with us, that He is for us. He's on our side to do good for us. Now, that that doesn't mean that He's going to guarantee a victory for the softball team or that your promotion is going to come through. Or that you're going to live to a ripe old age. that, That is not what he has promised us. It means that when you face trials, God is committed to being with you and ultimately working them for our good as one of his very own children. So when the trial rises, fear will tell you that God is distant. Fear will tell you that he doesn't care about you, that he's abandoning you, that he intends to do you harm. But when that happens, you must listen to what God says. And here's how God tells the story. The mountains may depart. By the way, you ever seen that happen? I've never seen it happen. Those things aren't going anywhere. The mountains may depart and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Isaiah 40, or 54, 10. I mean, what's more immovable than a mountain? And God says, my steadfast love for you 
will outlast them. It's more unshakable than a mountain. Mountains and the hills will sooner pass away than my love will disappear for you, Christians. Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You're mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Verse 5. Fear not. For I am with you. Fear not. For I am with you. God is with you. God delights in you. And so lesson number five, and I'll close with this. So walk by faith. Walk by faith. The author of the letter to the Hebrews writes to a church body that's facing some very difficult circumstances. That's where we opened up today, right? Book of Hebrews. That church is facing some serious trials. And they're tempted to throw in the towel. And the author of the letter to the Hebrews tells them to take heart. Make sure you encourage one another through this season because they're tempted to be afraid. And that fear might just lead them to madness so that they do something that they should never do. Like go back to Egypt. Throw in the towel. And so the author says, Hebrews 14, verse 13, exhort, I'm sorry, Hebrews 14, Hebrews 3, verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Confidence, courage, persevere in your confidence, keep going through the trial, And then he takes them back to Numbers 14. And here's what he says to this, the Hebrews congregation. Hebrews 4.2 For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Joshua and Caleb listened. And if the rest of the congregation had had faith, they would have been united to those two and entered into the promised land. So Israel's problem was that they did not have faith in their God through the trial. And the author of Hebrews says, persevere, have courage, persevere, keep going, trust in the Lord. The Christian walk, brothers and sisters, is a faith walk for you. It's a faith walk for me. And it's a faith walk often through Trying circumstances. It just is. If you're not facing them today, you will soon. In the days to come, the months to come, the years to come. It's a faith walk. And as those challenging situations come upon us, the people of God, in the days ahead, I want you to remember something. God places His people into challenging situations. This is no strange thing. Everybody agree with that? God places his people into 
strange and challenging situations. We are often tempted to fear in those challenging situations. But the Lord is with us. And the Lord delights in us. So do not fear. Set your eyes on Christ, the victor, and walk by faith. Hold fast to the Son of God, who has gone before us, conquered the enemies of God. All things are working for your good, because you are the chosen people of God. So walk by faith.